0: morning everyone. Our scripture reading today is from Proverbs. I'm not going to try to list every different verse in Proverbs. We'll just call it a medley of different Proverbs starting with Proverbs 12 and all this is on page 6 of your bulletin. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. Even in laughter the heart may ache and rejoicing may end in grief. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty, rescue them, and you will have to do it again. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Uh,
1: to be honest, answer that question Lot of us, maybe most of us, actually do. And yet in the realm of our emotions, unbeknownst to ourselves, isn't it true that many of us are emotionally immature? This is the thesis of Pete Scazzaro's insightful book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, uh, where he proposes that even most of those who are professing Christians are adults physically, but children emotionally. Uh, You say, what does that mean exactly, children emotionally? Well, listen to a few ways he describes the emotional child that most of us are. Uh, Like a physical infant, I look for others to take care of me more than I look to take care for them. I often have difficulty in describing and experiencing my feelings in healthy ways, and I rarely enter the emotional world of others. People sometimes perceive me as inconsiderate, insensitive, and self-centered. Or, or like a physical child, when life is going my way, when life is going my way, I'm content and seem emotionally well adjusted. However, as soon as disappointment or stress or tragedy or anger enter the picture, I quickly unravel inside. I interpret disagreements as a personal offense and I'm easily hurt and offended by others. When I don't get my way, I often complain, throw an emotional tantrum, withdraw, manipulate, drag my feet, become sarcastic, take revenge. I have difficulty calmly discussing with others what I really want and expect from them in a mature and loving way. Christians too often separate what you might call spiritual health from emotional health. And strangely, oddly, unhealthily, the church too often has defined quote-unquote spiritual maturity as knowing a lot of facts about the Bible, of being able to spew out sound theology, or even just living an outwardly moral life while underneath it all and oozing through the cracks of our lives in our relationships, underneath the religious facade, in truth, we're scared. We're anxious, joyless, oblivious to just how depressed we actually are with little ability to process our sadness, our hurt, we're constantly critical of other people, fiercely defensive when we get criticized, we're insecure, terrified of failure, easily annoyed, resentful, unable to forgive. We are, are we not, emotionally unhealthy. We are emotional children. And yet we don't even know what to do with it from there. I admit in my own life, I've gone through different phases of misunderstanding. At times, believing that as a Christian, I'm called simply to repress all my feelings. To be non-emotional. Isn't that the ideal? When in fact, it's not. God made us with true emotions. Yes, they might be broken, and they do need to be repaired. But to be human is to be emotional. At other times, I've gone through phases, I don't know about you, where I feel like all I'm meant to be is emotional. Let me express myself. And when I've called what I have called self expression, however, too quickly and too easily, has actually been a veiled form of not self expression, but self centeredness. The goal, of course, in our emotional life is love love for God. Love for others. The goal is not repressing our feelings. The goal is not simply just expressing our feelings either, but to grow in what we might call wisdom with our feelings. We need emotional wisdom. The foundation for all of this, and the foundation for giving this much attention to our emotions, our feelings, is simply this. That we were made to be emotional beings because we're made in God's image and God himself is an emotional being. I don't know if you've noticed for whatever time you have spent in the Bible, if you read the New Testament, how much Jesus was moved with compassion, pity, by the sick, by the needy, by the spiritually hungry. How Jesus cried at the death of a dear friend, Lazarus. The way in which he got angry, Jesus got angry at hypocrisy, hard heartedness, dead religiosity. Jesus also went to people's parties. Have you seen that? He was full of life and joy and laughter. He was the happiest person ever. You see, some of us, one of the greatest signs of the fruitfulness of growth in our emotions is that you should be more joyful in your life than you presently are. Do you understand? If you don't know emotions, if you don't understand emotions, you can't understand and know God. Because God is emotional. Which is why in his book, The Cry of the Soul... The Christian counselor, Dan Allender, tells us that paying attention to emotions can be a wonderful opportunity to know God. It's not just touchy-feely time, friends. This is not just about getting in touch with myself or knowing myself. This is about knowing God, too. This summer, we've been learning about wisdom from Proverbs, studying the wisdom for decision making and future plans, studying wisdom for the way that we build relationships, the way we manage our money, did you know that there's something you might call emotional wisdom? It's what the Proverbs offers us, emotional wisdom. This is what we need for emotional maturity. Of course, in Proverbs, we find a whole catalog of all different kinds of emotions, peace and joy and anxiousness and anger and bitterness all things that are dealt with there but today only briefly we have time to just touch on three we're just going to touch on three of these and these three number one fear number two grief and number three envy let's look at that fear and then grief and then envy if you look at proverbs chapter 28 number one looking at fear here We read, the wicked flee though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Proverbs 14, verse 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, not fear, but strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Many, many different kinds of fear that plague our lives. Do you see that? How much fear can control and dictate the choices that we make. How much they can define our relationships. I want to focus in on one phrase, one aspect of fear, one kind. What the Bible calls the fear of man. As a proverb puts it, the sense that someone is pursuing you. It's not just in the sense of being terrified of physical harm from another person. This is the way that the Bible talks about How much we can tend to need far too much other people's approval. How much we are terrified of people's disapproval. It might be a parent. It might be someone that you're in a romantic relationship with. It might be a teacher or a boss or a peer group. It might be just about anyone. Someone whose acceptance we desperately need. In fact, it can run so deep you feel like you can't live without it. So that everything in your life starts to revolve around the sense of needing to perform for them. To do the right thing and to keep them in favor so that they will love you and accept you and approve of you. And you say, well, what does that really look like in real life? Let me just give you one small example of just how practical and everyday this struggle of fear of man can actually be. And it's in the realm of emails. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the way in which emails can overrun your life, just a pile of communication in the way that you are just feeling like you're on your phone all the time, or you're feeling like you're having to respond to people all the time, or you never are because you're paralyzed from the challenge. Why can emails sometimes overrun our lives? Well, Laura Palmer, who's an executive coach, Uh, She gives some helpful advice in an article I recently read. She offers an explanation. She says, well, why can email overrun our life? It's fear. People fear being seen as a slacker if they don't answer their emails right away, she writes. They fear letting people down. They're worried they're going to miss something or be left out. Or they keep checking email because they're looking for validation. Or getting attention feels good. But really, all those fears can distract you from what really needs to, be, needs to get done and what's really important. Even in your emails, do you see it? The way in which we're trying to constantly appease people. The way in which truly those relationships can tend to uh, define who you believe you are. We're told in this proverb, on the other hand, the righteous, those who follow hard after Christ, are fearless, bold as a lion. We're told that in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. That sounds like a a, a sort of a, 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 a conflict there, doesn't it? A little paradox. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Of course, by fear of the Lord, what the Bible always means is awe and wonder before a God that's bigger than all of us. And here's what the proverb is trying to tell you. Whoever and whatever is biggest in your life will define you. Whoever is biggest in your life and whatever is biggest in your life will control you. Do you know why you're so fearful, so controlled by other people's opinions, so desperate for their approval? Proverbs is telling us it's because God is far too small in your life. And people are far too big far too threatening, far too important. In fact, they are God-like in our hearts. But to fear the Lord, to put Him in His right place, is to give us strong confidence before others. To know that the, the awesome God that He is is the same God that puts His smile upon you, who forgives your sins, who in fact is so big, he sees everything that's broken and flawed and sinful in your life, and yet he loves you. And yet he forgives you. And yet he draws near to you to believe in that sort of an awesome God. If you have his smile, you can bear under the frown of any person. And if you have his acceptance through Christ, you can bear under the rejection of any person. And if you have his justification, this theological term we find in the New Testament, where we are declared righteous and accepted by God in Jesus, then we truly have strong confidence to move out even into the brokenness of broken relationships. Because to fear the Lord is to mean that his opinion is the one that's starting to only really count. His love is the one that defines you. His acceptance, his awesome, wondrous grace fills your heart and makes you full. Slowly, slowly, even when people reject me, I'm free, strong, strong and confident. Number two, briefly, grief. Proverbs talks about fear. Proverbs talks about grief. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. This is what that Proverbs is telling us. Uh, Don't mistake laughter for an absence of of pain. Even behind a smile might be hidden grief. Of course, you hear words like that and insight like that into the human heart, the human condition. It's hard not to think of Robin Williams, right? Comedian who passed, great actor who passed this past week. But the truth is, we don't even have to go that far. You can just look at your own heart. The pain that some of you are bearing, maybe even hiding behind a smile, behind wonderful laughter and humor. The way in which we carry around ourselves grief and sorrow. It's so important to understand this when doing life in community. That there is a whole universe of hidden grief and sadness right here in this room. Do you know that? We need God's word to remind us of that. This is the reality of life in a fallen and sorrow filled room. I'm not saying the chit chat and the laughter is fake, it's just that life is complex and full. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. The person next to you may be suffering from the grief of a lost job, the sorrow of death in the family, the loss of a relationship the embarrassment and shame of failure, the confusion and the trouble of just life that isn't working out is is full of disappointment. It's not the way I thought it was going to be. Are we finding within this community freedom to grieve? Where you are and together we are learning never to assume That you know a person's whole story just from surface appearances. To learn, this is wisdom, right? Wisdom to know that there's always more than meets the eye. Which means as you get to know people, you're always curious to get beneath the surface. To unpeel the different layers in people's hearts. Because I know I have them. And I know you do too. And God wants to get in there And learn to care and to trust one another. And he's teaching us to care and to have sensitivity. But not only to others, also to ourselves. Because how much do we have a tendency to forget to or refuse to pay attention to the grief inside. And only when you give it the attention that it really needs. Will you find the healing that God really makes available to you. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, yes, it does promise the Christian a deep joy that can never be taken away. Yet even still, it's important to remember that a Christian is a person that's not one who's free from sorrow. Not free from sorrow. And in fact, when a person comes alive to Christ, what often happens is God often softens your heart. So that you actually become more vulnerable to the world's pains. Not less. You actually see brokenness that you are blinding yourself to all around. Or you become more other-centered. So everything that was consuming you selfishly, suddenly you're released from. And you're noticing, wow, broken friend. Messed up relationship. Weeping neighbor. Never even saw it though it was always there, though they were always there in front of me. Broken world around the globe, does your heart weep even now for all that is going overseas in the Middle East in West Africa and elsewhere? God softens our heart not only to the pains around us, but also to our own pains. Christian maturity, friends, entails slowly finding yourself confessing more and more, I never knew that I was hurting so bad either. Because you see, when you, to go back to the last point, understand that God accepts you not on the basis of your togetherness, not on the basis of your moral performance, not on the basis of your sorrowlessness, If you smile a lot, then I'll accept you. If you never weep, then you're okay in me. No, God takes you with all your mess and your sorrow. If that's true, then maybe for the first time, you can actually be free to be your jacked up self. You can actually let yourself be the sobbing mess that you're afraid to be. And some of you today need to let yourself go there with a friend, in a small group, with a roommate or a spouse or maybe even a child to unpack the true vulnerability and hurt that is within us, the wounds that Jesus died to heal and longs to redeem. After all, he is the one who doesn't simply sympathize with our grief. He entered into our grief. Do you understand the good news of the Christian faith? That it's not just, we have not just a God who looks upon our sadness and feels badly for it. He's a God who actually jumped into it, becoming an emotional human being just like us. Subjecting himself to the same world's sorrows and heartache that you and I suffer from. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus, the Messiah, like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Who's a savior like him? That on his cross he would, from his bleeding wounds, pour out into your life grace for healing and comfort. Wisdom for our grief wisdom for our fears. Lastly, wisdom for our envy. There's really so much we can talk about here, not only with envy, but even you can go on with anger. You heard a number of Proverbs uh, read about related to anger or contentment, different emotional categories. We're going to end with this envy and then we're going to take some questions because we love to do some Q&A. Let's talk about it. Proverbs 23 verses 17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs twenty-seven, four: anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Proverbs fourteen, verse thirty: at heart, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. What is envy? What is envy? Envy is wanting. What someone else has. It's being bitter that you don't have it and they do. As one teacher put it helpfully, envy is is being unhappy at someone else's happiness, Uh, which then makes you happy at their unhappiness. (laughs) When bad things happen to them, you're kind of quietly rooting for their failure. Envy kills our joy. You know, nothing you've got ever feels good enough. Nothing you have, nothing you are ever feels like something worth thanking God for. When you're eaten up with envy, you're never grateful. You always feel like God has never blessed you. It's a miserable experience. Just like the proverb says, envy rots the bones. I don't know about you. When I'm wrestling with envy, you can just feel it. (laughs) It's just that gross feeling that you can't shake. Of course, there are lots of different ways we struggle with envy, job envy, body image envy, child envy, friend envy, money envy, making an impact envy, all different ways. We could go down the list. My personal struggle right now these days, and I have a lot of them in this area of envy, I tell you, whether if it's in looking over my shoulder at different ministries Preachers that I feel like are better than I am. Husbands that are doing a better job of loving their wives than me. But here, if we could talk briefly about one I've really been wrestling with, it's one you might call um, lawn envy. Uh, Grass envy. I think I've told you recently, I put in a number of hours into putting together this tiny little, really unimpressive patch of grass in the backyard. Uh, about 200 square feet of lawn, and you go to these sod farms and you bring over what is absolutely uh, heavenly grass. I mean, they have grown this perfect... Lawn and they cut it and they give it to you to go stick it in there and you wait and you just watch it slowly die, right? <laughs> you know, it's a discouraging thing, and I'm obsessing over not only keeping it alive but making it, uh, yeah, you know, back to the fear of man thing, impressive to others that come to the house, right? You know, want to show your uh, your skills as a a lawn manicurist. I don't know if that what it's called, but it's made me in my lawn obsession envious of those. Who have a better lawn? I notice just about every patch of grass in town. I do. <laughs> Taking a walk with the family, I'm always, you know, not paying attention to my wife, you know, as she's talking, checking out the grass. Hey, that's a, you know, that's a, that's really impressive, you know. And and, and I tell you, it it, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> you know, it rots the bones. Hey, that's man, shoot, that's really nice, right? start deflecting blame, right? No, 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 you know, mine's not as good, but it's not my fault. It's the clay underneath. It's a shady area, you know, all these reasons why it's not my fault, you know. Uh, I hate your nice lawns. (laughs) Isn't that how envy works? Isn't it? I mean, obviously, there are much more serious examples in all of our lives, but isn't it true it's all the same? You notice what others have and what you don't have. You can't enjoy what you've got. I mean, even yesterday, someone actually said, hey, that's a nice-looking lawn, and I just muttered something. (laughs) Can't even enjoy it. And I've heard people say that envy is a bigger struggle in cities. It's an interesting dynamic, right? Uh, Places where it's actually more crowded Uh, where you're living side by side with a people of a variety of economic backgrounds, where you see, you actually see in cities what other people have more easily than you might in other places. You know, you're walking by, you can even peer into their windows and not get arrested for it, right? Because you're just that close on the sidewalk walking by. We're vulnerable, aren't we? Here we have... This question to ponder, you know, uh, is is there a person or a relationship in your life uh, where it's just been tough and you haven't realized it, but maybe you're starting to now, that at the heart of it, it's envy that's been decaying and souring that relationship. There's something that they have that you wish you had, and so you just hate them for it. It's making you miserable. The whole time you're with them, you just have a pit in your stomach and you don't know what to do with them. And you never realized. You thought it was them. And now you know, perhaps, it might be you. It might be envy. Here we have helpful wisdom, again, in Proverbs 23. Don't let, envy, let, don't let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There's surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Okay, what do we do with our envy? We're told two things. One, again, the fear of the Lord. Awe and wonder, specifically what? Awe and wonder at God's generosity. And this is not just mentally telling yourself, I've got a good thing. That doesn't work. Have you tried it? It doesn't work just to say it. Will you deeply pray it into your heart until it catches fire? God has truly blessed this sinner more than I deserve, more than I can ask for, starting with the cross. I deserve judgment. He's given me Jesus. I deserve condemnation. He's given me forgiveness. I deserve to be discarded. He's made me his child. I deserve rejection. He's given me acceptance. I deserve to be pushed away. And yet instead he pushed his son away, Jesus, on the cross that I might be received, that I might be drawn in to intimacy with the God of the universe. Start there. He's given me so much already. And yet beyond that, he's given me even more. Understand the blessings in your life. See it with eyes of faith and marinate your heart in it. Soak in it. It takes time, doesn't it? You can't do this drive-by. You've got to carve out time until it feels like the awe and wonder of your heart. When you feel the impact? Envy is an emotion. It's got to hit you emotionally, sensing it with your heart. I can't believe God would love me so That he would be this generous. And slowly you can start looking out to other people and say, wow, they've got a lot. But I am a man truly blessed. Yeah, they do have some things that I don't have and maybe even things that I want. But I'm so glad I have the life that God has given me. I'm so glad that Jesus bled for me. The fear of the Lord, number one. Number two, a future hope. Again, the writer of the Proverbs tells us here surely there's a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. It's this certainty that when Christ returns, when all things are raised to life, that in Him, dear friend, you will be given everything your heart truly does want. Envy struggles with the denial of the heart today, but one day your heart will be satisfied like you cannot imagine. One day you will get the body that you always dreamed you would have. Not yet, but a resurrection body, a perfect one. Maybe you envy relationships. Do you know one day you will have perfected relationships? First and foremost, in God in Christ, when you see him face to face when he returns, but then also through him, perfect love with every person that you wrestle with in Christ in a broken relationship with. You'll have it right one day. You want status? You'll be seated with Jesus on his throne. You want glory? You will be radiant so much so that even human eyes would need to divert itself from you because the Jesus glory and radiance will be reflected off of you like what you can't imagine. And don't even get me started about what kind of lawns and grass we'll have one day. (laughs) This is the gospel. This is the good news of God who gave everything to you and me who lavishes his kindness upon you and me. You see, the good news of grace is God is not like you and me. He wasn't happy in your unhappiness. Jesus was miserable in your unhappiness, as it were, that he was so zealous to give his life that you would find true happiness in him. Jesus paid the debt that we owe for all the wrongs we've Ever done, you see, because in envy we always say, I deserve more. In love, Jesus says, I'll take what they truly deserve, in justice and in judgment, that they might have me. And slowly, little by little, the grip of envy is loosened from our hearts. God begins to heal our hearts from these diseases of heart. Repairing our emotions, redeeming our emotions, our envy, our grief, our fear. Do you long for that, dear broken brothers and sisters? We're in this together, aren't we? Do you desire wisdom for your emotions? Emotional wisdom, emotional maturity, which is true spiritual maturity in Christ. It's what God offers us. He'll give it to you. Let's pray. We're praying that you would transform our hearts, transform our lives, our emotions, our bodies, our everything. And so we bring ourselves to you humbly. And we say what we really need is a healer. What we need is a Redeemer. Christ your son and it's in his name that we pray amen it's all stand.